Remember the other day when I asked you if there was such thing as Lux chocolate milk, Mexico's favorite, because it was an ad in my dreams? Yeah, your, your dream. Yeah. I remembered the other ad that I had in my dreams, like maybe over a year ago, and it was for a nutrient for your cat if your cat was not behaving well. And the product was called Petulant Cutrient. Uh, it sounds like an idea Philip K. Dick would have left on the floor. <laughs> Dude. <laughs> that's probably what my dreams are. Exactly. That's, it defines them exactly. Live from a country where, as we learned this week, there's a very powerful religious group on your Sunday morning TV who wants the end of the world. That's why they don't care about climate change or burning fossil fuels or anything for that matter. This is Hell. Yes, this week's interview with former white evangelical Tad DeLay about his book, Against What Does the White Evangelical Want, really freaked me out. And if you missed it, you can find a link to Wednesday's entire show at thisishell.com, as well as on social media at our Facebook timeline and on our Twitter feed at This Is Hell Radio. To be clear, Tad is formerly a white evangelical. He is sadly still white. This week's question from Hell is... What are you filling the void with? What are you filling the void with? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or on Twitter at thisishellradio. The listener who responds to the answer we like most will this week get a flash drive loaded with the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century, featuring 25 interviews from the 2000s, experiencing the historic era as it happened here on This Is Hell. Alex has some of the answers that you listeners have sent to us for this week's question from hell. Alex, what are some of the answers you've already uh, what are you filling the void with? Alexandra H. says podcasts. <laughs> Jack W. says anechoic screams. Excuse me. Uh, it means the echo doesn't bounce around. I had to look that up. They're pulling a Richard Seymour on us, <laughs> making us look up words. Jeffrey B. says videos from the Chinese chugging guy. Karen K. says knitting. Kevin W. says light. Meredith A. says, that's a very good answer, more void. <laughs> I like that. Joe S. says failed resolutions. <laughs> uh, David B. or Sorry, David G. says dark matter. Benjamin C., continuing in this drain of making us look up words, said flogiston. What's that? It was the uh, 18th century idea that everything that blew up contained flogiston, and that's what blew up in the things that blew up. <laughs> All right. It's a funny time back then. Uh, Donald H. <laughs> says Rocky Horror. Ugh. Jessica B. says Hope and Prayer. <laughs> MGB says, God damn, I do love shrimp chips. One of the weird things I miss since going meatless. Anyway, I'm just filling the void with cats. Is there any really, is there shrimp actually in shrimp chips? Yeah. Okay. Uh, that makes them so shrimpy. Yeah. Uh, Jack B says the Noid. Sarah M says <laughs> existential terror and throw pillows. Uh, Wally R says great stuff. And John M says I reflect on the implanted memories of Dr. Eldon Tyrell's niece. If they had just said throw pillows, uh, that would have been my favorite answer. But existentialism and throw pillows, you know those two things clash. Look at them. Put them on your couch together. It never looks good. What are you filling the void with? What are you filling the void with? Leave your sponsor our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or on Twitter at thisishellradio. Alex, the reason I decided to have our flash drive, the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century is this week's prize, is because for those of you who are Patreon subscribers to our bonus show every week, subscribe at patreon.com slash thisishell. I talked about the fact that I have absolutely no expertise Something that nobody else in the media would ever dare to admit, but I am more than willing to because for some reason we keep getting stuff right that most of the experts keep getting wrong, at least the ones that don't appear on our show, but our regulars in the corporate establishment media. So this flash drive is kind of exhibit A in the evidence supporting our case that the news media has to be really screwed up to be regularly, regularly schooled on the most important historic moments of the 21st century by this nickel and dime 
dog and pony show and a nickel and dime you got dog a nickel? and pony show. Yeah, I was going to say, I got a dog and a pony too. A nickel, a dime, a nickel and dime and dog and pony show. It really is a pretty fantastic show to see. Just to get you quickly caught up so far this week, we spoke with sociologist Miguel A. Martinez about his new book, Squatters in the Capitalist City, Housing, Justice, and Urban Politics. Miguel explained that squatting is, and these are my words, not his, squatting is the occupation of abandoned buildings, often surplus residences caused by the commodification of housing that has resulted in millions of empty homes while millions of Europeans go homeless. The squatting movement is continuing to expand in response to neoliberalism, which brought homelessness to Europe, something that was very rare prior to neoliberalism. Toward the end of our conversation, I asked Miguel, is squatting, is that the revolution we've all been waiting for? And he said, again, this is me paraphrasing Miguel, no, but you need politics for a revolution and the politics being practiced and discussed in squats has the potential to be the politics you need for a revolution. Which made me think of the monologues I did Monday and Wednesday that were about Greta Thunberg, but were really about the power of politics to make change and the wasted power we witness in politics performative display in the media and all this took me back to last week's conversation with Corey Robin. Then we spoke with Tad DeLay and he even brought up our conversation with Corey Robin and I already told you how much I'd been weirded out about that conversation because white evangelicals who want to end the world and destroy us all bringing about doomsday explaining why they don't give a damn about anything at all let alone pollution or climate change or wars or racism or misogyny. Hell they, they even embrace hating people for the color of their skin or their gender, as white evangelicals' privilege and supremacy pushes us toward Armageddon. And these doomsday seekers are getting real close to the doomsday button in the White House. So yeah, totally freaked out by that conversation with Tad DeLay on Wednesday. Manufacturing dissent since 1996, this is hell coming up. Turkey has gone to war, invading the autonomous Kurdish zone within Syria. And when they're not busy with Trump's impeachment speculation, which is clearly far more important than people actually, not speculatively, dying because of Trump's actions, commentators gave their reasons for the attacks on the Kurds, all having to do with U.S. politics and U.S.-Russia relations and international entanglements of all sorts. But nobody is writing about the way internal domestic politics within Turkey led to the war and what our guest argues is the real reason for the war. We will have the return of translator, journalist, and independent writer Max Zerngast, who co-wrote the Jacobin Magazine article, Turkey's war in Syria is a war for fascism, and I probably should have said spoiler alert before reading the title to his piece. Max is studying philosophy and political science in Vienna and Ankara. This is Max's fifth appearance on This Is Hell. You may remember that Max was arrested, detained, and imprisoned on political charges last year. Last month, all those charges were dropped. We'll discuss Max's tangle with the Turkish legal system when we also talk to him about his first article posted after charges were dropped. I am free, but Turkey is not, and that's also at Jacobin. Where the coolest musicians get their news, this is hell. I just want to give a quick thanks to President Trump for raising awareness of the history of racism, white supremacy, and privilege in the United States by inappropriately referring to his experience as president as a lynching. Mr. President, you have my gratitude for reminding all citizens of the United States, all voters, all of us, that those mobs of white people would kill black people as entertainment. Thanks for the reminder that mobs of white people would kill black people as entertainment. A lot of definitions will also include that those who were hanged lost their lives without trial. I don't really think that's necessary to include in the definition because even with a trial, there is no justice in hanging for entertainment. And it was entertainment. Just go look up all those photos of lynchings with smiling white people getting selfies in front of the dead, still-hanging body. It's the epitome of racism, or maybe slavery is. Look, I'm not going to get into what's worse, lynching or slavery, but they are interconnected in the U.S. history of institutional racism, upon which this country was sadly founded, explaining each and every unfulfilled promise of democracy the founders ever made. And I want to thank President Trump for putting lynching in the news cycle because every one of his comments and tweets leads to an obsessive media response, often mired in days, if not weeks, of speculation. But you don't need to speculate about lynching because it actually happened. Certainly the news media industry will discuss, debate, analyze, criticize, scrutinize everything about the history of lynching because Trump mentioned it. And whenever he mentions anything, the echo chamber gets turned up to 11. So I had this whole idea of thanking Trump for bringing attention to the history of hate in this nation, 
The offended were quickly rushed in front of news cameras and into news studios, and suddenly the media kind of just dropped it and moved on to the next stupid tweeter quote from President Trump, as if Senator Lindsey Graham saying the president's use of lynching was appropriate turned it into a he said, she said debate with equal merits, and the debate was over and as dead as the victims of lynchings. So I wanted to thank President Trump for at least trying to get the U.S. history of lynching, slavery, racism, bigotry, oppression, repression, and hate out into the public eye again and into the public debate. But next time, media that obsesses on everything Trump, next time he gives you this kind of opening at revealing any of the horrors of this country's past, Next chance he gives you to show the America he wants to make great again, one filled with violence towards others based on the color of their skin, one based on institutional racism. Take it, because if you don't, nobody's going to notice this is hell, and that's the first step to doing something about this being hell. This week's question from hell is, what are you filling the void with? What are you filling the void with? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or on Twitter at thisishellradio. The listener who gives us the best response will win a flash drive loaded with the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century, featuring 25 interviews from the 2000s, many of which are currently not available anywhere online. Live from land stolen from the natives, this is hell. Turkey raided our next guest's home, arrested him and two of his friends, and jailed them for political reasons. Last month, the government dropped all charges, and the dropping of those charges reveals something about the state of the Turkish state today and the reason for the newly launched war against the Kurds. Both his arrest and the current war can be traced back to fascism. Returning to This Is Hell to help us understand exactly what the hell is going on in Turkey, translator, journalist, and independent writer Max Zerngast co-wrote the Jacobin article, Turkey's War in Syria is a War for Fascism. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Max. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. It's always great having you on the air. Uh, Max, you start your article by writing on October 9th after receiving the green light from President Donald Trump. Turkey realizes long-standing ambition of invading northeastern Syria, Rojava. Yet, and I keep looking for it in every map of the area invaded that has been in the print edition of the New York Times, Max, Rojava is never included on the map. And it's not only that. I've not seen one article that mentions Rojava more than once. And each article that does mention Rojava, Max, doesn't mention it as a part of the region, but as in the Rojava Information Center, an information service run by activists in the region. What does news coverage of the area that Turkey is invading in Syria? What is missed in our understanding of what's happening when Rojava is not mentioned in any way other than as the information service run by activists in the region? I mean, it's not just the news coverage. I'm not even sure if uh, President Trump has and 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 other you know important people in the U.S. administration have an important uh, have a real insight into what's going on in the region. I doubt it. But yeah, I mean, it's it's crucial because there is actually um, an interesting project uh, going on that I think uh, bears closer examination, especially from uh, journalists, um, because it is different from all the other. Uh, projects going on in the region. It's an alternative to the authoritarian states in the region. And this is also why it is the whole project, the autonomy in northeast Syria, is not uh, beloved by any of the uh, states and powers in the region. Uh, just recently, over the last 24 to 36 hours, President Trump said that he was going to be sending tro- troops back into eastern Syria. But they didn't say northeastern Syria. It seems like they were returning to the area that isn't in the Rojava section of uh, the border region. Do you know where is the? Do you know where the United States is planning on sending troops back into Syria? I mean, uh, it's probably in. Uh, within the borders that is, uh, you know, claimed by the autonomy north of Syria, uh, also called Rojava in Kurdish. Uh, however, it's if he says that it's not northern Syria, then it's probably not on the Turkish border, which, uh, you know, has to do with uh, Turkish uh, demands from the U.S. to drop uh, the uh, Syrian Kurdish and um, Syrian Democratic forces in the region as a partner, uh, which they mostly did. Uh, and also in the eastern uh, part of that region, 
the southeastern part of Rojava, if you will. Um, there are very many important oil fields. So um, they came together with President Trump's um, you know, declarations that U.S. soldiers will protect the oil fields uh, in the region. Uh, this makes sense, I think. Yeah, that does make sense. And I, I was really wondering why there wasn't any context given to the fact that Trump was sending troops back into a certain region. They didn't ever say why. And the fact that they uh, that they may be protecting oil fields totally makes sense as to why it wasn't mentioned on the network news. You write, as Turkey's autocratic president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, has stated the operation seeks to cleanse an area in northern Syria 30 kilometers deep and 400 kilometers long from terrorist elements and resettled up to 2 million. Syrian refugees from Turkey, since the area encapsulates nearly all of the bigger cities under the Kurdish-led autonomous administration of North and East Syria, which uh, what began as the leftist Rojava uprising in 2011 stands on the brink of destruction. We have discussed Rojava with many different activists. We've talked about it with uh, Dilar Dirik. We've talked about it with David Graeber and many others. But there are those, Max, even on the left, who see in Rojava not an independence movement, but some sort of failed Western plot to overthrow the government of President uh, Bashar al-Assad. They see the entire Syrian war as yet another Iraq war of regime change launched by the West, and anyone fighting Assad, therefore, somehow is corrupted by Western governments who are working to oust a political leader who is allied with Russia and not Europe or the U.S. How dependent upon or independent of the West is Rojava's Kurdish-led autonomous administration of North and East Syria? Uh, first of all, I would say that it is uh, way too uh, easy to just uh, read the whole events in Syria, the war that is going on for eight years, uh, which has seen a lot of change in alliances. Um, to read it just as a, a plot, a Western plot to overthrow uh, the Syrian government. Uh, it is certain that there are many Western uh, powers, and in fact, many uh, other powers as well, as Russia is now the key player on the, on the ground in Syria, uh, who uh, pursue their own interests in the region, who used the war, uh, who used the escalation of, uh, you know, uh, some protests that happened, uh, not only in Syria, the whole region at the time, in 2011, uh, and used it to uh, pursue their own interests. And because of the complexity of the situation, we have seen um, the rise and fall uh, of certain actors like ISIS, uh, we have seen the project of autonomy uh, developing uh, in northeastern uh, Syria, which is Rojava. Uh, and we have seen that even uh, powers like the U.S. or Russia or regional powers like Turkey um, pursued their interests but couldn't do so 100% because there were other actors in the region who, uh, well, while pursuing their own interests, stood against them. Uh, and to say that uh, autonomy in northeastern Syria is just an Western plot would mean to uh, ignore, first of all, the, the will of the people there, um, would mean to ignore uh, that there are subjects on the ground who try uh, to pursue their own project, however successful it is, that is a different question, um, or whatever the pol political content is, this is something that can be discussed, um, but it has to be recognize that there is an attempt to try something different uh, in a very difficult region, in a very complex situation of basically permanent war and not a threat just from one side. You know, there was the threat of uh, ISIS, there are tensions with the Assad uh, government, there is obviously the now especially the threat of Turkish invasions uh, and so on and so on. And, and all of this has to be done while at the same time take, uh, taking into account American and Russian interests, mostly, or, you know, international interests. Also, the European Union, obviously, is present there. So this is a very complex situation. And to do politics in such a complex situation uh, requires alliances, tactical alliances, which are not always very nice, not always favorable. Uh, it's not necessarily something that people who enter those alliances really would want, you know, if they could uh, choose, uh, choose freely. But uh, it has to be recognized what the circumstances are. And I think from this uh, standpoint, uh, to say that it's just a Western plot is uh, not correct. 
Why, why would the U.S. support Rojava in any way? Why would they support Kurds who wanted autonomy, who are practicing this revolutionary experiment in socialism and direct democracy? Why would, uh, you, why would the U.S. support such an experiment, which seems antithetical to the kind of politics that we are trying to accomplish here in the United States? I mean... Uh I think it's very clear that the support uh, was not a strategic support. It was a tactical alliance on the ground. Uh, and we see now that neither the U.S. nor Russia, nor, of course, any of the authoritarian states in the region, have an interest, a real interest in strengthening this autonomy, this autonomous region. Because uh, on a structural level, it counters, uh, well, their very own fabric, so to say. It counters what they are. Um, and this is why uh, the Kurdish forces and other forces in the multi-ethnic uh, Syrian democratic forces could be viewed as a tactical ally against ISIS, but also obviously to get a foot in to Syria. Um, but, you know, I mean, the United States was there anyway. It would have gone there anyway. So um, they were looking for allies on the ground and they found them in this uh, then very quickly, multi-ethnic Syrian democratic forces, which uh, are the armed forces of the autonomy in northeastern Syria. But this does not mean that the United States strategically uh, wants to ally themselves with um, these forces. And now we see, clearly see that this, this is not the case. Uh, the arch enemy of this uh, project of autonomy is Turkey, and Turkey is still a NATO ally and a close ally of uh, the United States. And what they were trying, it seems to me, I mean, uh, for a certain period was to work together with Turkey as well as with uh, the Syrian Democratic Forces. But now um, there's a conflict, obviously, in, within the United States uh, command, so to say. There's different state factions with different interests, and Trump seems to represent one faction which wants to pull out of Syria and other countries and let NATO allies to the job on the ground, which would be Turkey in this case. And there are other uh, factions who want to remain there and still, you know, kind of maneuver by working together with more than one side, so to say. But what has happened very quickly in Syria was also, we should not forget this, that uh, many forces of the Syrian uh, opposition, which uh, are mostly jihadist forces, uh, Islamist forces, were supported by the CIA. Uh, in some way or another, not only, of course, also by Gulf monarchies, Turkey, uh, while at the same time, the Pentagon, uh, some way or another, supported the Syrian democratic forces. And now some of those jihadist forces are fighting together with Turkey against the autonomy, and they fought the Syrian democratic forces, they fought the Kurdish fighters before. In other ways, there's uh, CIA-supported groups fighting against Pentagon-supported groups. Uh, which shows that uh, the, in the interest of the United States is contradictory, so to say. Contra yeah, contradictory, I would say, and would seem, well, to what extent do you think the United States is causing the difficulties within the border region and the fighting between the Turks and the Kurds and uh, Syrian Islamists and the Syrian government? How much of, an, of a problem is it that the United States is there? Because a lot there are people who are very upset that the United States has pulled out of Syria. But on the other hand, there are people who are very upset that the United States was ever there in Syria and pulling out of anywhere militarily when it comes to the United States, anywhere in the world is a good thing. So how much of a problem is U.S. presence, U.S. military presence in the region? I mean, it's a complex question because one has to look at concrete circumstances. Of course, uh, it would be good if there would be no U.S. forces anywhere and the people in the respective regions could decide their own fate. But in this concrete case, especially the way it was done, uh, meant that uh, Turkey could just march in there and uh, invade another country. And the problem is normally, uh, and even uh, some kind of scientific council of the, of the German government, uh, uh, yeah, the German administration, uh, said that this is not covered by uh, international law. Uh, of course, the German government, German administration doesn't uh, you know, act according to that. Uh, statement by its 
own scientific council, but uh, still, I mean, it's very clear that what Turkey did there is an invasion in the neighboring country, into territory that is not its own. So the question is, how is that protected? You know, who are the forces that would protect international law in that case? And obviously, there is no one really who is stopping Turkey. And that is a, a crucial problem. And, you know, obviously, uh, what I think everyone on the ground in Syria wants is that the people in Syria can decide their own fate, be they Kurds, Alawis, Sunnis, or whatever. But this is uh, made impossible by the U.S., by Russia, uh, by the Gulf monarchies, and especially also by Turkey, which is the only country who is actually occupying part of Syrian territory. Not only now the small part that it, uh, or not so small part, but at least less than it actually wanted, uh, that it's occupying in northeast Syria, but also before they invaded Syria in 2016 and in 2018. And they're already occupying parts of Syria, western, northwestern Syria in this case. And uh, these parts of the land, uh, they're actually, their legal status is unclear to me because uh, they are part of Syrian territory, of Syria, but at the same time, they are controlled by Turkey and there are even governors and some form of administration which is appointed by Turkey. So it's actually a form of annexation. And, you know, we really have to question uh, what's going on there, also from the standpoint of international law. But no one seems to do this, because Syria, uh, throughout the course of this eight-year war, has, declared, has been declared more or less a zone where everyone can come in and out, as they please, whenever they have the power to do so. Uh, there is no legal, uh, you know, kind of, uh, no legal basis for all of this. Uh, weapons speak. So this is the way we have to evaluate uh, the situation on the ground. Exactly. And that's, you know, uh, again, in all the coverage that I've seen and all the coverage that I've read, I've never heard any mention of the legality of the war or any of the invasions. You write much attention has rightly been paid to Trump's approval of the invasion, as well as the United States about face with regard to the Kurds. But here in your article, you and your colleagues want to focus on how Turkey's internal political dynamics gave rise to the invasion. That's one of the things I've never really understood. Why don't we look at internal political dynamics, which are more often than not drivers to war? Why do we always look to see, uh, why do we always, I should say, erase those kind of internal domestic reasons for war and instead only focus on the international reasons for war? I mean, obviously, the, the, the answer to the question differs from country to country, from region to region. But especially in the Middle East, the middle, wars in the Middle East are very often read exclusively in terms of the imperialist world system and the dominating imperialist powers above else, the United States, which is not exactly wrong because obviously they are very powerful and very influential. But some states in the region, it's not only Turkey, it's also states like Saudi Arabia, who is leading, still leading a war in Yemen, for example, that no one takes attention of, or Iran, and uh, to a lesser extent other countries as well, they have a certain amount of power on their own to go into other countries or to intervene in other countries. And they seek to do so, especially with a changing world order. With the decrease uh, of the U.S. hegemony and the destabilization of regions like the Middle East, uh, smaller powers as well uh, seek to uh, pursue their own interests in other countries by invading them or, you know, other forms of uh, intervention, not only military. And this is why it's important to understand Turkey not as a proxy of the United States, but as a country that has its own internal contradictions uh, and acts according to these contradictions as well. And obviously, their own contradictions are also related to the world system. They are not independent of the world system. They are not independent of the relations to the United States. But uh, still, uh, they are their own internal dynamics in Turkey are very crucial uh, in understanding how it acts also outside of Turkey, in the region. And you're right that for the dominant powers in Turkey, the mere existence of Rojava is seen as a danger and that it strengthens pro-Kurdish and pro-democratic forces in Turkey. How much is the invasion of uh, Syria 
and the invasion and the attack on the Kurds, about undermining alternative democratic forces, about undermining the opposition, the political opposition to Erdogan in Turkey? I think it's about, uh, well, a couple of factors. First of all, yes, there's a structural uh, problem that the Turkish state has with the project in northeastern Syria. And uh, from its own standpoint, rightfully so, in a way. Um, but also, it wants to unite the bourgeois opposition, so to say, other state forces, uh, state factions in Turkey behind the strong leader, Erdogan, uh, because the regime itself is in a deep hegemonic crisis. And uh, by this, you know, pursuing this war, they could split the opposition, they could uh, separate the Kurdish opposition from the other opposition, uh, and integrate the bourgeois opposition, which is very often very nationalistic as well, even if it is opposed to the uh, regime, uh, into their own, well, at least into the project of war, uh, because this is part of the state rationality in Turkey. It's very strongly anti-Kurdish, and if there's a war, it sticks together and unites behind the strong leaders. As a third reason, there's a very deep economic crisis in Turkey. And the Turkish state somehow in the regime has to solve this crisis, which is probably can't. Uh, also, you know, whatever the uh, capital interests are in northeastern Syria, and that clearly they are because all the capital factions in Turkey uh, supported uh, the war. Uh, whatever the interests are, uh, it will only be a temporary solution. That is uh, very clear. But on the other hand, if there's a war, internal uh, uprisings, strikes, protests can be, uh, well, out, outlawed or at least, you know, repressed much easier. We have seen this before. There have been a lot of strikes which have been outlawed uh, very often by uh, referencing national security interests. And we are seeing this now, for example, tomorrow. Uh, in Ankara, in the capital, there should be an ecology uh, demonstration by um, several organizations, e ecological organizations, and it has been forbidden by the governor of Ankara. And we see this more and more, that the war is used um, as a form of legitimization of this, these forms of repression. And Erdogan lost elections, uh, lost the mayoral election in Istanbul and other major cities uh, earlier uh, this year. They then had a rerun of the election. He then lost those again and was seen as having a weakening grip on power. And uh, you write how, uh, with discontent already simmering, cracks spread throughout the entire systems following this year's local elections. The nation's highest judicial body, the Constitutional Court, ruled by a single vote that lawsuits against the anti-war group Academics for Peace constituted a breach of freedom of expression in the wake of the decision. Hundreds of academics that had been persecuted for their beliefs were acquitted. Now, this suggests that conservatism, Erdogan's politics, were falling out of favor in Turkey. So is the war on, uh, Kurd, on the Kurds, is this about winning political points with the Turkey, Turkish population? And does it work? Uh, of course, yeah. It is also about uh, internal politics. It's about staying in power for Erdogan. Um, probably, if it works well, they will have their own, uh, you know, research on this. If it works or if it doesn't, uh, they will have an early election, snap elections, uh, and uh, seek to get re-elected as president. Uh, but I'm not 100% sure if it really works that well. Yes, uh, the bourgeois opposition has had to support. I, you know, I'm, I don't know whatever the individual beliefs are, but they had to publicly support this war, largely. Um, all the state and capital factions are united behind Erdogan in this war. Uh, also, obviously, um, parts of the population are in support of this war, which are oppositional. Obviously, his own uh, uh, base uh, is supporting the war, but also some parts of the opposition uh, are. But I'm not really sure if the people in Turkey are so excited about it. I mean, by this I mean, uh, I have the feeling that many, though not, uh, you know, speaking out against the war or being really against it, but they are indifferent towards it because they have other problems. For example, their dire economic situation. And I'm not sure if they are convinced that this war really solves their personal problems in their everyday 
life problems, uh, like how to get food on the table, because the economic situation is really bad. Uh, and thus, I'm not sure if that really works, to be honest. Uh, the problem is that we don't really have any reliable information on that. Uh, there are basically no inquiries, at least none that have been published. It is forbidden to criticize the war in public, for example, on social media. There have been more than 120 arrests uh, regarding to, uh, to that. And the Minister of the Interior said very clearly that calling it a war and not an operation against terrorism is an act of terror propaganda. It's an act of treason. Uh, and taking this into account, yeah, many people, even though they oppose the war or are not convinced by it, would not speak out about it publicly. So it's not quite easy to get a good idea of where the populace stands on this war as of yet. And we don't have any, uh, at least I don't know of any reliable information on it. You write that what is at stake, though, is neither Turkey nor the existence of the state. This is not a war to defend Turkey from an imminent terrorist threat. It is not a war to let the fountains of peace spring forth as the military offensive, ironically titled the Peace Fountains Operation, would have it. It is a war by the forces of the far right in Turkey to regain lost momentum in order to institutionalize themselves. That is, it is a war for the sake of fascism. The way that you were just describing the criminalization of dissent makes me think think that Turkey is fascist already. How much is Turkey already a fascist state and how much more fascist can it be? Well, I mean, what we tend to do is we uh, speak of a process of fascistization. I have a difficult word to say for me. Um, so I would say that there are some forces and the current regime forces uh, around the president and his allies, they seek to uh, pursue this project further. The problem is for them that they are simply not strong enough uh, to implement um, a strong, in the, in, you know, in a general sense, strong fascistic regime. They don't have the power to do it. Uh, 50% of the population largely uh, are opposed to them in general. Maybe they support, part of them support the war, but in general they are opposed, against, uh, opposed to this government, to this regime. And if you have to uh, suppress 50% of the population, and you cannot do this for years now, because uh, in every election, they are hover around 50%, and sometimes this is with ob obvious fraud. Uh, so this is not a strong fascistic regime uh, in the sense of the, of the term. Also, I think there's still counter tendencies. There are still people speaking up. Maybe for now they have a problem because there's a strong urge to repress all these tendencies because of the war. But I don't think that uh, repressive state apparatus in Turkey can uh, pursue this very long. So there will be protests again. There will be people speaking up soon. Uh, and it's one feat of the Turkish society, especially of the women's movement, of the Kurdish population, uh, of the Alevi population, and also to some extent of the working class. Uh, that it has not been silent. And even though there has been repression throughout the last years, uh, it has spoken up, it has protested, it has taken to the streets. And, and this is why, even though they do want uh, to pursue a much more repressive course, uh, they cannot implement it at will. And we have to see how uh, things turn out now, obviously. Uh, it's still not quite clear how, uh, if the war has settled, has been settled for now with all these treaties uh, and what the effects on Turkey will be. But I'm quite confident that there will be social dynamics that will stand against this uh, trend towards fascization. Uh, and especially now, I think we have to add the working class because the economic situation is really bad and, and there are many uh, collective bargaining agreements and uh, similar uh, discussions ahead in the next month. And I would not be surprised if we see uh, large strike waves and uh, worker uh, uprisings. You were just mentioning the trend towards fascization, and you, that is a tough word to say, and you write voices in the pro-government press have even begun to criticize the presidential system that Erdogan pushed through via referendum in 2017, and that greatly expanded his powers. To what extent is the war happening 
because of the 2017 referendum that expanded his powers. Is this an outcome of expanded uh, presidential power through the trend towards fascistization? Is this, is the war that we're already seeing on the Kurds, is this an expression of that fascism? Uh, I think it's an expression of the hegemonic crisis that has been lingering at least since 2012-2013. And uh, two important factors of this hegemonic crisis is the popular uprising in Gezi, uh, and also the rise of the Kurdish movement to become even more stronger, and especially the project of autonomy in office in Syria, which challenged the very hegemony of the state and of the regime in power. And because of that crisis, because of that popular challenge from social dynamics, uh, and because of all the social contradictions, you know, that all the social dynamics are expressions of these contradictions that exist, uh, there has been also crises and struggle within the ruling class, so to say, within the state. Uh, you know, the coup d'etat happened or the attempt coup d'etat happened and all that, which is all an uh, outcome of this struggle. So there's a struggle among the ruling class and there's a, a struggle uh, between the ruling class, the state and popular dynamics. And the referendum is also uh, an outcome within this process. And so are all these wars on the inside and domestic wars, which have, has happened in 2015, 2016, where the Kurdish movement has uh, been rising up in the cities in Turkey uh, and been uh, attacked there by the Turkish state. And now uh, it happens on also before in uh, northern Syria. You write that in addition to diverting attention from socioeconomic grievances and consolidating the nation against the eternal enemy that is the Kurds, yet again by means of chauvinist mobilization, the military incursion promises an at least marginal economic recovery for Turkey. What do you mean by chauvinist mobilization? Well, mostly uh, there has been uh, a streamlining of the media, this is a process that has been going on for years by uh, buying up media groups and by bringing everyone online with the government. It's difficult to say, but I would say that 90, 95% of the media are largely in line with the regime. I mean, there might be some slight uh, opposition, but none of this opposition within the media is fundamental. For example, now, uh, when the war began, there was a full-out support of the war by journalists, uh, where journalists have quite obviously forgotten their role as journalists and celebrate the Turkish soldiers and uh, you know, bombings of uh, cities where there are civilians, obviously, in Syria, and all that on, on screen or whatever their medium is. But also, the majority of politicians, you know, all the bourgeois opposition even, uh, wrote statements on Twitter or on other uh, platforms in support of this war. And at the same time, all form of opposition to the war uh, is suppressed. And this kind of mobilization to get people out in support of the war. Also the national uh, the soccer team, they all made a military salute uh, in their, uh, their matches and all that. Uh, this is all part of this all-out mobilization of chauvinistic um, impulses against the Kurds especially. You write, just after Erdogan announced his occupation plans to the entire world at the UN General Assembly late last month, the, his office published a booklet detailing potential projects for Ojava once occupied before relocating one to two million Syrian refugees to these lands. Turkey would invest an estimated $26 billion U.S. for construction and infrastructure. Is Turkey looking to permanently occupy Syria, permanently occupy Rojava in order to save its economy? Well, this is a diff- uh, it's an interesting question that I uh, touched upon before. Uh, probably Turkey wants that, but the question is, does it have the strength to do it? I'm uh, very skeptical about that. But uh, as you know, since the beginning of the war, there have been roughly, uh, by now there are roughly three to four million Syrian uh, migrants in Turkey. And while 
for a long time, they have not been really a topic of the political discourse. Also, they have not been subjects of the political discourse, but also not objects in a negative sense, at least not, uh, you know, uh, in, a, in a wide sense of the population. Uh, within the last two years, especially with the deepening economic woes, uh, the racism against Syrian migrants in Turkey has increased. And for the first time, the government, which has long been uh, speaking of uh, Islamic Sunni solidarity vis-à-vis uh, -vis the Syrian migrants, has uh, openly made some racist statements, said that it would send back the migrants, and so on and so on. So this is also actually, uh, you know, a propagandic effort uh, to say that we are sending back Syrian migrants to Syria, we will resettle them and all that. At the same time, obviously, uh, the talk is about $26 billion investments, but also uh, I have seen figures up to $50 billion investment, uh, which would also, uh, all of it would profit the construction sector, which is very important in the Turkish economic model and which has been in crisis, a very deep crisis in recent years. It has all, almost been stalling completely in Turkey. Uh, and this would be at least temporarily uh, a field where the Turkish construction sector uh, could gain new life. So is this whole conflict, is this all about the failures and the collapse and the la uh, loss of popularity and the loss of efficiency and effectiveness of neoliberalism? Is all of this about the failures of neoliberalism within Turkey? Um, not all of it, I would say but it plays an important role. Obviously, there are international dynamics. Obviously, there is state rationality against uh, the Kurdish movement, but also against uh, all form of demo democratic aspiration. It's not the Kurdish movement as the Kurds, as being Kurdish. It's that it is a movement that proposes alternative models of organizing society, and it also hits, obviously, all forms of democratic opposition within Turkey. So uh, everyone who wants to change, uh, fundamentally change, uh, the despotic state tradition in Turkey uh, is in the focus of the regime. He wants to suppress all these uh, movements, all these um, initiatives. But also, yes, of course, the rise of some of these movements, at least, and the fact that, it has, that these movements have become so strong uh, are directly related to um, the crumbling economic uh, system, the, the, the crumbling uh, of the accumulation model in Turkey. Only because of that, uh, those social movements could gain strength because more and more people are impoverished, more and more people um, are jobless or work in very precarious situations. Uh, and obviously, they are protesting that situation. You write that Russia seems to be the primary winner of the imperialist proxy war in Syria. What would you say to someone who argues exactly? That's why Trump allowed Turkey to invade, because Russia told him to. Because I know MSNBC viewers here in the States who are yelling that at any given moment, that everything that Trump does is because Putin told him to. What would you say to somebody who says the reason that Trump left and didn't support the Kurds any longer is because Trump told him to? I think that's quite ridiculous. That's not the way it works. Um, it's, it's also not just Trump. You know, obviously, there is a faction within the U.S. state who supports Trump. Otherwise, he wouldn't be able to do all that and he wouldn't or he wouldn't be in power uh, after three years or four years, um, which he still is. And there's a chance that he gets reelected, which means that a faction or some factions within the U.S. state and within U.S. capital uh, do think that uh, however erratic it is um, in the way Trump expresses these things on Twitter, um, U.S. foreign policy and domestic policy has to change. And they see the Trump presidency as a chance to uh, pursue that change. So uh, to read uh, the actions of the United States, why just one person uh, is wrong. And to, I think to believe that uh, Russia dictates uh, U.S. policy uh, 100% is also uh, wrong and is something that immobilizes uh, democratic opposition, socialist opposition in the United States uh, itself.
In your first article since you were acquitted on all charges the Turkish government had leveled against you, that article is, I am free, but Turkey is not. You write, on September 11th, 2018, I was taken into, uh, into custody along with two friends of mine following a 6 a.m. raid by Turkish anti-terror police. Exactly a year later, my comrades and I were fully acquitted of membership in an armed terrorist organization. We had spent roughly three and a half months in prison and been barred from leaving Turkey even after our release. We have discussed this with you several times on the past on past shows, and people can find all of those interviews by going to thisishell.com and just searching on your name, Zerngast, Z-I-R-N-G-A-S-T. But did you expect that you would be raided? Had you or your friends discussed the possibility that you were being watched or targeted? And the reason that I'm asking is I'm curious about that trend towards fascization that you were talking about before, and if you were detecting that as your uh, arrest eventually happened? Well, I mean, uh, you always have to expect uh, these things in Turkey to a certain extent. So uh, that brings with it that you, you know, you do not overestimate uh, the possibility at the same time, otherwise you get paranoid. But also, uh, if you are a critical towards the government, if you are um, in opposition, if you write, if you do other uh, form of oppositional work, you have to prepare yourself for such a situation. And I think um, we were quite well prepared, actually, uh, personally and psychologically, that this could happen, and we handled the situation quite well. But other than that, I mean, a lot of it is chance. You know, you never know uh, really who is going to be a target. Uh, it does not make full sense. I mean, that probably is an internal logic of the Turkish police forces and the judicial system. But uh, I know people who have been active in like socialist politics for 30, 40 years, and they have never had as much as an arrest. And I know people who uh, did nothing more than, you know, write one critical tweet or whatever, and they have been in prison. So what is the logic behind that? Oh, you could argue that the state chooses people from all segments of society uh, in order to send the message that everyone is a potential target. That uh, makes quite a lot of sense, but it does not take everyone. The strength uh, of the state does probably not suffice uh, towards taking everyone. Uh, and so it was a coincidence. Uh, it was by chance, but I always knew that it could happen, yes. You write for me personally, the court ruling is, of course, a great relief, but the idea that this in itself is an auspicious sign for Turkey as a whole is wrong and can only be claimed if one abstracts from the totality of developments. What do you think the message is that Turkey was trying to uh, send to the international public when they did release you much quicker than they would have released somebody who is a not only of Turkish origin, but of somebody who is a Turkish citizen or a Kurdish citizen? What is the message? What do you think the message that Turkey was trying to send with your release? I mean, I'm not exactly sure if they were trying to send too big of a message. But what happened after uh, the local elections, in the months after the local elections, was that there was a partial liberalization, uh, precisely because of the hegemonic crisis, precisely because the regime was weak. So, uh, in the same period, the academics for peace. Were all acquitted, uh, and similar uh, trials were ended with acquittal mostly because quite clearly they said we have to do away with the less important, in, in, in quotation marks, less important cases, um, and you know, create the image of a liberalization, create the image of uh, a more uh, democratic uh, judiciary, and all that uh, to calm down the opposition, and it worked to some extent because the opposition did not push for uh, a snap election or a new constitution, and remained quite passive, and also obviously sent, in my case maybe, a message to uh, Europe, European Union, to say, look, yeah, okay, we, we're getting this kind of thing done now, but at the same time, uh, the day that I was acquitted, or the day after, uh, there was another Austrian citizen, of Kurdish origin in this case, who uh, was found guilty of being a member in terrorist organization and tried for six and a half years in prison. And right now, another Austrian citizen, again of uh, Kurdish origin, uh, is 
banned from leaving Turkey, even though she was just visiting her family and is working in Austria uh, for, I think, over 30 years. Uh, so it's not really uh, a kind of instantization of this liberalization. Quite clearly, now the war, the quite opposite happened. But even before, it was just a partial gesture uh, that the regime used in order to uh, kind of regain its own force. And now repression is on the rise again. We have been speaking with translator, journalist, and independent writer Max Zerngast, who co-wrote the Jacobin article, Turkey's War in Syria is a War for Fascism. Max is studying philosophy and political science in Vienna and Ankara. This is Max's fifth, maybe sixth appearance on This Is Hell. He's been on so many times I can't count anymore. But you can find all of our interviews and all of our conversations with Max at our website. All you have to do is just go to the, thisishell.com and then type in Zerngast, Z-I-R-N-G-A-S-T. And you can follow Max on Twitter, at Max Zerngast. One last question for you, Max, and as we always do, it's the question from hell. It's the question we hate to ask. You might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response this week. Turkey's president, Erdogan, declared his desire for Turkey to have nuclear weapons. How does that change the way in which we should think about Turkey moving toward fascism? Uh, well, I think what he wants to do is, or he wants to kind of use the moment in international politics uh, to say, well, other countries, other powers similar to, Turkish, uh, to, to, to Turkey, to the force that Turkey has, do have nuclear weapons. So we want them to, because we are now an international player. He wants to legitimize uh, his politics on the world, uh, within the world system, within the international community. And when his politics is legitimized and he remains in power, that obviously means that the forces of repression, of fascization, which I still can't say, uh, are <laughs> stronger in Turkey than they would be otherwise. Well, both of us got to work on that word. I think I'm going to look in the mirror yeah. and say it about 15 <laughs> times tonight. Max, I always love talking to you, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for talking to us live from Austria Thanks today. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Take care, man. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible idea. This is hell. Thanks to everyone who went to thisishell.com and clicked on support this week to check out our store, I guess. This is hell trucker caps, coffee mugs, t-shirts, tote bags, and the This is Hell Guide to the 21st Century fe featuring 25 interviews from the 2000s. That is the prize for this week's question from hell. Thanks for visiting our store at thisishell.com. When you click on support, goes to Daniel for his tithing-like commitment to This is Hell. Thank you, Daniel. You too can see everything we have on offer at thisishell.com when you click on support. Okay, let's get to your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you filling the void with? What are you filling the void with? The listener who leaves the best answer will win that flash drive loaded with this, the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century featuring 25 interviews from the 2000s, many of which are currently not available anywhere online. You still have a chance to win by leaving your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio or on Twitter at thisishellradio. Again, the question from hell is, what are you filling the void with? What are you filling the void with? Alex, you have all of our listeners' answers because... I think we're going to look back fondly one day to the times when we couldn't remember how to say fascist... Damn. Fascization. Fascist... That's not it either. Fascization. Fa See? It's a toughie. How are you filling the void? <laughs> with the word fascization. <laughs> Uh, Chase D says, burritos and bong rips, while the void fills me with a deep, fleeting satisfaction. Isa M says, cocaine, or rather wishing I had some cocaine because my bank account is overdrafted. <laughs> Lisa B says, crushed ramen noodles and epoxy. <laughs> Have you seen that video, Chuck? No. I got some videos to show you after the show. Uh, I don't that, really want to. It's pretty great, actually. Uh, Aaron D says, photoshopping Mitch McConnell's head onto porn JPGs. Ugh. Nikki says, first I tried roaming the countryside as a disgraced ronin, but I ran out of beef jerky, and I realized I wasn't Japanese. We truly, we truly live in interesting times. Oh, Nikki, your cultural appropriation sickens me. Marie G says, donut holes, of course. <laughs> Lisa C says, unicorn tears. Rosario says, redirecting my career path to one that helps people and animals more directly, and greasy appetizers and running. <laughs> lot going on there Rosario. <laughs> I don't know man. Uh, Patrick P or Bradley P says Pokemon Go. Marshall W says ramen of various flavors screens of various sizes and unfitful sleep. 
kind of identify with that one. Uh, Gabriel C says mostly wine. Chad M says shuffled MF Doom special herb instrumentals. <laughs> Chris F says more void. Billy D says pessimistic sci-fi books. Terrible idea to be honest. Oh, Nikki checks back in to say. Looking and eating in an endless succession of 22-ounce tubs of all flavors of cozy shack pudding laced with opioids directly off the fully nude bodies of nine witty, intelligent, loving, artistic, creative muses. <laughs> Braden S. says, salt, fat, sugar, capsaicin, caffeine, orgasms, cat videos, and podcasts. <laughs> nice. How are you filling the void? What are you filling the void with? Courtly A. says, obviously not shrimp chips that inspired in March 7th, 2014. Uh, referencing the picture I posted on yeah, Facebook right. of this. Uh, Nick A says, questions from hell. Jeff C says, cheap leaf burning ceremonies. <laughs> Wait, Jeff C? Yes, it says cheap, cheap leaf, leaf burning, burning ceremonies. ceremonies. Martin S says, top 10 lists and pirate bay. Bradley R says, flaming hot Cheetos and collapse porn. David T says, reruns of Gilligan's Island, of course. <laughs> A couple more. Dennis H says, angry Warren supporter tweets after the AOC endorsement. <laughs> Daniel F says, quantitative, quantitative easing. And finally, Andrea J says, meaningful sexcapades. What's that again? Meaningful sexcapades. <laughs> meaningful sexcapades. And that's from Andrea, Andrea J. 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 Thank God it wasn't Andrea G. Meaningful sexcapades. All right. My answer to this week's question from hell, what are you filling the void with? On Wednesday's live stream, I said CDs as in old compact discs, which made me sad when I thought about it. So I figured every piece of plastic that we do not need, maybe we should just throw that all into the void. So I'm thinking on just moving into the void and seeing if I can avoid the doomsday aspirations of white evangelicals and the vast emptiness of whatever else is in the void. Oh, geez, that Tad Delay interview is really wrecking me. All right, that makes the winner of this week's question from Hell and the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive featuring 25 interviews from the 2000s that are not currently available online. I liked, uh, let's see, Joe S. said failed resolutions. I like that. Jessica B. said hope and prayer. I like that. Jeff C. cheap leaf-burning ceremonies. Meaningful sexcapades from Andrea J. Uh, I'm going to go with... Meredith A. had one right at the beginning, and now I didn't write it down. I can't remember what it was. Do you have that, Alex? Meredith A., can you find yeah, it? Yeah, pulling it up. Yeah, it was right at the beginning. Because I'm not too sure. I'm, I'm having difficulty, and people are on the edge of their seats. Meredith A. says... More void. More void. All right, let's just give it to Meredith A for more void. <laughs> Meredith A, you are the winner of a This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century featuring 25 interviews from the 2000s. Our weekly Wednesday evening meet and greet, This Is Hell Office Hours. Oh, and so Meredith, this is what you do. Send us your mailing address to uh, at Facebook. Send us via the message at facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and uh, we will send you your prize. Our weekly Wednesday evening meet and greet, This Is Hell Office Hours, happens every Wednesday night at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West of On in Chicago's Little India Neighborhood. More than a meet and greet, the cell office hours are a think and drink with the emphasis on drink. Thanks to everyone for hanging out with us this past Wednesday, including Dave, John, Johnny, Daphne. Daphne, thank you for that amazing book of Chilean uh, graffiti. It was incredible, and I'm really sorry I didn't get a chance to talk to you about what's happening in Chile right now, but uh, I was very busy. Uh, thanks for bringing Brian with you, too, from, uh, what was it illuminated pipe uh, beer uh, brew works limited brew works uh, really great to meet him as well also thanks to wally ronaldo leo theron andrew tom shelley elliot and pete join us any each and every wednesday evening at carrie's lounge 2251 west of on the bar downstairs from this here studio we'll give you this is hell advertising stickers and show related books just for dropping by that's this is hell office hours every wednesday evening at carrie's lounge 2251 west of on in chicago's little india neighborhood we also want to show our appreciation for our new subscribers on patreon who now get access to our weekly bonus show only for subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell live streaming with a new monologue by me and a classic interview from our archive that is unavailable anywhere else. Streaming live every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Chicago time and podcast shortly after exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell. Alex, who did join us on Patreon this week? Uh, thanks you. Thank you, Kendra K. Thank you, William W. And thank you, Zach. 
I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, who's on next week's one-hour show beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time, streaming live at thisishell.com. Okay, uh, Monday 10, we got Luke O'Neill to talk about his book, Welcome to Hell World. That's what I'm going to be reading and writing that entire show today. If I don't finish it today, I have to come in tomorrow, and I don't want to come in on Saturday morning. Who's on uh, Tuesday's two-hour show beginning at 2 p.m. Chicago time, also streaming at thisishell.com. All right, uh, so yeah, Wednesday or Tuesday, 2 p.m., I'm still working on that. That slot, uh, we have a request out, so hopefully we can get into some Venezuela and South American politics. But right now at 3 p.m., we definitely have booked Christine Scott Hayward as the author of the book Punishing Poverty, How Bail and Pretrial Detention Fuel Inequalities in the Criminal Justice System. Yeah, depressing book. Who knew? A, game, a book called Punishing Poverty is depressing. I was really stunned by being able to judge that book by its cover. Uh, so, uh, and then finally on Wednesday, do we have anybody? Yet? Oh yeah, yeah, we got Intan Suwandi. Uh, thank you for the suggestion, Calvin. And we're going to be talking about Intan's book, Value Chains: The New Economic Imperialism, which has got to be the most complicated book I'll be reading this week, right? You figure. Uh, have you opened it yet? No. Okay, it's like six hundred pages. <laughs> I'm so glad there's ex- there's other writing by Intan elsewhere. All right, so thanks to you, Alex, for producing this week's show. Thanks to Ronaldo for giving us the uh, writing for the rot- for Rotten History. Thanks to, let's see, let's go through everybody else here. Thanks to our guest today, Max Zerngas, for talking to us about his article, Turkey's War in Syria is a War for Fascism. Thanks to guests from earlier this week, including religious scholar Tad DeLay, author of Against What Does the White Evangelical Want, and What They Want is to Destroy the World. Also thanks to sociologist Miguel A. Martinez, author of Squatters in the Capitalist City, Housing Justice and Urban Politics, which was a fascinating discussion about a different type of activism that I had not heard about and is not happening here in the United States. The best of my knowledge, uh, but is sweeping across Europe. This week's Hangover Cure is Chili Cheese Toast because Brooke Kuzik of the Daily Bruin, the UCLA newspaper, said it's super simple, super hearty, and super easy to make, which makes it just super. Listening live is better. Bumper stickers should be issued. This is hell. There's only one way to get over all of the problems we've introduced to you on this week's show. And that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms toward the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.